0: Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 17 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. If you are looking for a comprehensive overview of the topics we covered and when during this episode, then do consult the show notes. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview. In Germany, we put Borussia Dortmund under the road to nowhere microscope, Marco Rosa's side are out of the Europa League, they're out of the DFB Pokal and they are almost certainly out of the Bundesliga title race as well. So we asked ourselves, where exactly do Dortmund go from here? In Spain, we shone a spotlight on Xavi's man management at Barcelona, focusing in particular on the significance of Xavi's tendency to hug his players. Elsewhere, in Italy, we asked ourselves whether Genoa boss Alexander Blessing can turn draws into wins, while in France, we analysed the remarkable recent form of Nantes, identifying some of the key factors behind the club's success in the league and in the cup this season. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, Design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at ffops on Twitter. Right on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. It does seem quite trivial to be discussing football given what's going on in the world right now and on that note we would just like to say that our thoughts are with those affected by the invasion of Ukraine and indeed those affected by conflict across the world. Hopefully this episode if you are listening from somewhere affected by war hopefully this episode can bring you even just the slightest slither of comfort uh michael jones how are you doing
1: yeah i'm good thank you i'd say you know it's obviously a difficult time at the moment and i'd just want to echo everything you said really and sort of send out my best wishes
0: absolutely Uh, and i'm sure rudy barlow would echo those wishes barlow will be joining us shortly uh he is currently working and such as the hectic schedule of Michael Jones, such as my he- hectic scheduling, such as Barlow's hectic schedule that we've had to do some scheduling gymnastics of sorts, but we, we will manage to bring you all four sections as usual and Rudy Barlow will be joining us shortly. So bearing in mind that we won't be joined by Barlow for a little longer yet, I think we should probably start with Italian football because we've had some Really exciting developments. I've had some really entertaining games to watch, as has quite regularly been the case in Italy this season. And so, Michael Jones, I'm going to come to you now and ask you a few questions about Serie A. Serie A's Sunday evening grandstand fixture saw title rivals Napoli and AC Milan face each other at the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. Milan would win 1-0 with Olivier Giroud netting the winner just as he did against Inter in the Derby last month. For all the Frenchman's heroics, just how much credit does his manager, Stefano Pioli, deserve for masterminding another massive victory?
1: Yeah, I think he deserves absolutely loads of credit and really for sort of all criteria that a great manager needs. He was excellent. He sort of demonstrated his tactical expertise in this game, but also the sort of player and man management that's been so key to his tenure, which started not long before we started this podcast. And I guess beginning with tactically, it may be worth casting our minds to the Inter Milan derby in the league last month where AC Milan sort of started out with the four two three one, which they regularly deploy under or is regularly deployed under Stefano Pioli. And they went 1-0 down and they were getting absolutely battered in the game. He tried to use... Frank Kessier in a number 10 role, which just didn't really work. And they were really struggling to get hold of it. And it was actually purely substitutions, uh, bringing bringing Brahim Diaz on in his place. And it really allowed them to turn the game around. You could tell that purely had sort of looked at that fixture and also looked at Napoli's recent fixtures, maybe most importantly, their defeat to the heavy defeat to Barcelona in the Europa League. And he almost tried to mirror what Barcelona did but whilst recognising the abilities of his own players. And he went for this 4-3-3, something he's not used too much, whilst keeping similar personnel. And he had a midfield trio instead of Kessier playing in front of Sandro Tonali and Ismail Benassar. He had a midfield three with Tonali in the middle and Benassar and Kessier on either side. And what it just did was it just nullified Napoli's midfield. And even though Napoli had more time to prepare, should have come in fresher given there was another Milan derby last week in the Coppa Italia semi-final first leg AC Milan just came in with so much more energy and they really stifled Napoli of really any creativity and possibility to build up in the more dangerous areas of the pitch and I thought one of the things that Barcelona did really well in that game as well was isolate Victor Asimian which AC Milan replicated and that was key but there was sort of a really interesting way of doing this the way I thought I thought that it's obvious that Victor Simeon is Napoli's danger man, and Pioli recognised this. But he also recognised that, unlike when Barcelona played Napoli, that Napoli would have a lot more at the ball. So, in many senses, it was how can Napoli are going to keep the ball? They're better on the ball than us. But how can we get them with the ball in less dangerous areas of the pitch without exhausting ourselves with such a high tempo press? High tempo high press. That they've not always used too much this season. So, I think what they did really well was the game management. They sort of allowed Napoli who ended up having sixty percent possession, sort of ball in the deeper areas of the pitch, and largely it meant that that out, even though they'd have long periods of possession, they'd resort to an out ball, which would be victor asimian who's happy, maybe one of the flaws to his game, but is also a weak, a strength in some departments, is that willingness to run and run the channels which he was doing the whole game, but he was so isolated that, I mean, apart from him, probably should have had a penalty in the first half, but I think AC Milan also had a case for a penalty. It just really disturbed Napoli's flow, and AC Milan were the only team that looked natural in the pitch, and they would sort of balance between sometimes pressing high and just holding positions high up on the pitch without necessarily sending men chasing after the ball. And Napoli were, yeah, just struggling to really get a Simeon into it. And when they did, Ficayo Tomori and Pierre Kalulu teamed up on him so effectively that it was always a two versus one. And it was very seldom that a Simeon was actually becoming victorious on those battles. And what this kind of allowed them to do was something that I've seen Liverpool do a lot of this season in the Premier League, where AC Milan almost played with a back two on its, in its own right, with Tonali in front. And then you had those two midfielders that we discussed earlier, Kessier and Benasser, sort of power and forwards. With the fullbacks, Davide Calabria and Luca Hernandez, and Teo Hernandez, sorry, playing as the sort of wide midfielders, which again forced Napoli even further back. And it had tremendous results. I mean, Hernandez had the most tackles and blocks in the game. Uh, Davide Calabria had the most successful pressures. While well. Kessier and Benasser led the way for pressures as well. And ultimately, it led to Napoli just not being able to get a foothold in the game. Their attacks breaking down easily whenever they did get men forwards because they didn't have that fluidity. They loved love to play with so much under a Luciano Spalletti system. And AC Milan just did a really good job in stifling them in that sense and start creating chances of their own, which, of course, came to Olivier Giroud with the most sort of vintage Giroud finish as they come, a free kick's come in and it's sort of ricocheted out to him and instinctively first time on the stretch, he's just placed it into the corner past his former colleague in David Spina. And I'd just like to touch on the, the man management really very quickly before we move on. And I think what Pioli's done so well this season is I think people are curious when Giroud was brought in. He was given the number nine shirt, a shirt that no strikers reached double digits for, for AC Milan since... Uh, people in Zagi over a decade ago, whilst and he's kind of had to balance this role of Jude and Ibrahimovic because realistically they would they struggle to play with each other because they occupy very similar positions. But I think it's symbolic that he's almost given them this dual lead responsibility in the team this season. And it's really allowed some of the younger players, it's generally a young squad to flourish. And, you know, a lot of this through the calmness, which he really gets things across. And I think it works for the higher-profile players and the younger players. And I think all in all, it was just a superb victory for Stefano Pioli. They've obviously got issues to work out against some of the smaller teams, but they've had two massive victories now, and it puts them in a great position in terms of momentum to push for that Scudetto.
0: Another key game at the top end of the table saw Roma defeat Atalanta 1 0. Michael, just before the Christmas break, you were very critical of José Mourinho and his prospects at the Stadio Olimpico. However, the Giallo Rossi are now seven games unbeaten in the league. Why do you think it has started to get rosier in Rome for the special one?
1: Yeah, I think I should have done an immediate apology to the special one because I think we recorded the last episode just before the last fixture, just before the international break, which Roma won this reverse fixture for one. So I had some uh, humble pie, is it, to eat um, <laughs> on my face. I can't remember what the expression is. But yeah, it's been a remarkable run because their response after Christmas almost looked like I'd been vindicated in what I said when they had back-to-back defeats to AC Milan and Juventus. But like you said, Ali, they've been unbeaten in the league. And I think there's the obvious reasons people may point to are the January signings. You know, Marino, even in recent seasons when things haven't really been as successful as they were in the past, his... He's always had, he always has been a good recruiter in terms of the players he brought in. You look at some of the players who are flourishing for Tottenham Hotspur recently. Um, But, you know, Ainsley Maitland-Nard and Sergio Oliveira, both high profile but cut price who were brought in during January. Not Whilst they both had a positive impact, neither of them even started in this game. And I think one of the issues I discussed earlier in the season that Mourinho was having at Roma was that there was an imbalance, a serious imbalance in the team. I think there was too many attacking midfielders, you know, doesn't sound like the worst problem to have. But the way that Mourinho wanted them to work in his more trademark 43-1 formation, it meant that the likes of Mikateri Mkhitaryan, Nicola Zaniolo, and Lorenzo Pellegrini were all occupying similar spaces, which ultimately meant that there was a lack of variation in their attacks, and it was very difficult for them to get into their own spaces in their own life for Tommy Abraham to create chances for him. And so I guess maybe I should have seen the signs just before the Christmas break, because we did see signs of him deploying a three-five-two, 5 2 albeit he would be having Brancostante in the middle, he would have all the defensive responsibility, and then either Pellegrini or Mkhitaryan on either side, but both of which had much more attacking tendencies, and it would again lead to a sort of imbalances in deeper midfield positions. But I think what he's done really well since the turn of the year is that he's recognised sort of on a more micro level, the players assets and given them different roles in the team. And the evolution of this Roma team in the past few weeks has been really interesting. So from this three, five, two, I think he saw that this could be a, something he could work with in the future. And he's gone with a three, four, one, two, where he's got Mkhitaryan playing deeper with Brian Costante. He's got Lorenzo Pellegrini in that number 10 role with all the, freedom in the world for him to create but maybe most interestingly is that he's partnered up Nicola Zaniolo as a wide forward but with both sort of both with both channels to play off from Tammy Abraham and it was in perfect effect when Roma got the winner when a long ball Roma 36% possession you know they're not going to outpass Atalanta but it, it worked it went perfectly for the goal and We saw a great example where Zaniola's ran into a space down a channel, touched the ball down brilliantly with the technique he possesses and lay off Tammy Abraham to get the goal. And so I think whilst there's been these really good signs of versatility, um, the man management, I guess, is always something you never want to touch upon too much with Mourinho because we know history tells us how quickly that can be changed. But one thing that he has also really changed that I'd just like to finish on is the his sort of flexibility and his trust in youth. Um, we've seen a number of young, exciting players from Roma, who in fairness, I do think possess probably the best um, academy, well, close with Atalanta for that in Italy. And earlier in the season, we were talking about the impact of Felix Atenesian, the Ghanaian uh, winger. But since then, we saw the unbeaten run, which was almost ended last month. Christian Volparto and Eduardo Bove, two young players, both got goals for Roma to get them back into the game. But one of my most favourite players recently for Roma is a guy that had been playing left-back, Nikola Zalewski, a young Polish left-back who kind of went through all the youth ranks. May, m- people may remember he made his debut when they got the sort of consolation win over Manchester United in the Europa League semi-finals last season when he I think he put the ball into Alex Tellers' path. He put it in his own goal. But... The, I just think the balance is really good at the moment, and he's started. I think the senior players have started to buy into what he's wanting from them more. Whilst he's also showing that he's maybe trying to, he there is maybe there are maybe signs of a new Mourinho, where he is trying to shirk off that inflex, that tactical inflexibility he's once been maybe accused to be guilty of, and also that attitude to youth players as well. There's, and I think there's quite a healthy formula. I mean. Just finally, I don't know whether they can push for the top four because the top four all seem to have quite a bit of momentum at the moment, but they're doing everything they can to be as close as possible to it.
0: Speaking of unbeaten league runs, new Genoa boss Alexander Blesan has yet to suffer a loss since arriving at the end of January. That being said, he has also yet to secure a victory after quite amazingly recording five consecutive draws. Although there seem to be clear signs of good work from the German in Genoa, they still sit seven points adrift of safety. So, is there anything to suggest that Blessan could turn these draws into wins, Michael?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was the, the record's remarkable, isn't it? I was on his Wikipedia shortly before we started recording. I glanced over his managerial record since arriving at Genoa, and it was six games, 0% win percentage, but also lost percentage as well and interestingly it's more than half the draws he achieved during his time with KV Ustend and he's got a really interesting profile more so for Italian football and part of that's why I really hope that he does succeed because it's not something we've seen too much so far you know he's from a very well-known cluster of coaches sort of spiraling up to Ralph Ragnier. and he started as a youth coach for the under-17s and under-19s for RB Leipzig and then in his first senior role did really well with Hoosend got them to fifth was manager of the year was heavily linked with Sheffield United job last year I think it was briefly linked to Rangers when Steven Gerrard left as well but and he nurtured some great talents there I think Scottish ones will be well aware of Jack Hendry's success Fashion Sakala at Rangers as well and a teammate of Aaron Hickey now at Bologna and I think it's he's basically got a lot to do in a short space of time. For those thinking that it's he should have got Genoa a win, Genoa have only had one win all season. They've had 14 draws. So this isn't some completely new territory for them. But he's also trying to, a big formational change as well where they were playing 3-5-2 under Davide Baladini, then Andrei Shovchenko. It didn't quite work out for him. I don't think he really had the time to make anything work, whilst all with the impact of a new owner. And I think the new owner is also a big reason why we're maybe not seeing them pick up victories so far, because whilst he's made them very compact and very organised, uh, some some of the new players, Jovan Vasquez, Mexican left, like a player really worth keeping your eye on, has... Is in the top 10 for most tackles in the league this season um and erster god who was brought in online from brighton in january is also leading in the league for ariel Jules one in terms of a percentage anyway per 90. but he, the, there is certainly a problem with them going forwards and it shouldn't surprise people that's where the issue is and i think he's got a bit of an he needs to figure out sort of how to fix that i think one of the sort of setbacks they've had is caleb Ekuban. The striker has been out with injury for the past few weeks when Empley was sort of seen as a really good chance then to pick up a win. But a lot of the responsibility has fallen to Kelvin Yaboa who is a nephew of Tony Yeboah. And he a really exciting prospect from Stem Graz in Austria. But he's whilst he's looked bright I think he's been very isolated. It's also completely new territory for him as well. And Whilst the recruitment looks really good, for me, I'm just very concerned that there are resemblances to Parma last season when they seem to bring in a lot of really exciting young talent in January, seeing as that could be their way out, which is something that's been replicated. And I just think they've, they, they're going to need to get them to gel going forwards a lot quicker. And I think that's ultimately Blessing's challenge. Um, whether he can do that, we yet to be see. But if it doesn't, then I guess along may this remarkable run of draws continue.
0: Absolutely, Michael. Absolutely. Well, thank you, as always, for that enlightening insight into Italian football, all the latest developments in Serie A. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to fill up our water bottles, and we'll return shortly to put Borussia Dortmund under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We'll be right back.
2: In Germany, there's an argument to be made that Borussia Dortmund's season is already over. They sit eight points behind the Bundesliga leaders Bayern, they were outmaneuvered by Rangers in the Europa League, and they were dumped out of the DFB Pokal by FC St. Pauli. Marco Rosa was supposed to be the man to address Dortmund's inherent problems, Ali, but those problems persist. So, where did Dortmund go from here? That's a really quite loaded
0: question and it's one I will attempt to answer (laughs) shortly. But before I do so, I would just like to take a step back and evaluate where it's going wrong for Dortmund. And I think if we do that, yeah, we'll arrive quite naturally at an answer of sorts to your question. Barlow, what I think is really quite telling is that despite the fact that Dortmund could move to within just six points of Bayern were they to win their game in hand, just about everybody has written off Dortmund's chances of genuinely challenging for the title. If they were in a better place on and off the field of play, we would absolutely be watching on and thinking, yeah, go on, catch by Munich. Sadly, however, Dortmunds are not in the best of places on or off the field of play. Now, I was speaking to our good friend Byron at Pure Football. He's obviously an expert in all things German football. So I was speaking to Bayern about Dortmund and he was able to summarise really quite neatly where it is going wrong for the eight times champions of Germany. Most notably, Barlow, there's no real structure to their play in the final third other than to pass the ball to Erling Haaland and hope ultimately for the best. We discussed Dortmund's lack of nuanced move construction in the final third, Earlier in this series, I believe, and even now, well over half the way into the season, we still see that same issue whenever we watch Dortmund. At the other end of the pitch, Dortmund looked so vulnerable and weak defensively. Out of possession, their shape has often been alarmingly poor. In their games against Rangers in the Europa League and Leverkusen in the Bundesliga, it felt Almost like Dortmund would concede a goal every time they faced an attack. Lars Severson raised that point on the OTC podcast, and he spoke about the fact that across their midfield and their defence, Dortmund don't really have a genuine ball winner, an intimidating presence, somebody willing to get stuck in. And I think, yeah, that does ring true when you watch Dortmund and when you look at their starting lineup, their typical starting lineup. There's no one in there who you think is going to get stuck in, you know, we're not advocating violence. We're not advocating reckless tackles. Far from it. But Dortmund do need somebody to, yeah, to to just get stuck in and to be an intimidating presence, a bit of a nuisance, if you like, either in the middle of the park or in defence, preferably in both of those areas. Quite simply, there's an argument to be made, Barlow, that the playing squad at Marco Rose's disposal is really quite subpar. And on that note, I do think we need to question the club's recruitment over the last few years in particular. The likes of Erling Haaland and Jude Bellingham, absolutely brilliant recruits, the two of them, but they are very much the outliers in recent years. Just looking at some of the recruits and transfer expenditure, Emery Chan, £22 not sure that's value for money. Daniel Malin, 27 million. He could come good, but he's taking his time to acclimatize to the Bundesliga. Let's just reserve judgment for that one at the moment. But 27 million, regardless, you, you do really need quite the response from him to justify that transfer fee. Nico Schultz, 23 million. Again, I don't think he's good enough for a team that wants to be challenging for the title, whether as a starter or even as someone you would have in reserve. And then Mats Hummels, £27 million when he was aged 30. And bearing in mind that only a few years earlier, I think I think Bayern only spent about what, £31 million on a player who was, I suppose, coming towards his peak. So a few years down the line, Dortmund, obviously there's the whole thing with inflation of transfer prices and whatnot, but Dortmund pay only a little bit less than what Bayern played for a player who was, when Bayern signed him, a lot better. So... I think when we look at that, we do see a pattern of, yeah, subpar recruitment of questionable recruitment of questionable squad management. Just focusing again in on that recruitment, it does seem, and I quote Bayern here, it does seem pretty scattergun. The players seem to be bought in primarily because they've done well at another club and not because they're well-suited to whatever style of play Dortmund are trying to implement. And again, on that note, interestingly enough, when you watch Dortmund under Marco Rosa, it isn't immediately apparent what style of play the 45-year-old is trying to implement. And when we think about playing style, when we think about identity more generally, there's a recurring argument, I think, to be made that perhaps ever since Jurgen Klopp left the club back in 2015, there's been no real overarching direction of travel at Dortmund in the post-corp era, they've floated from manager to manager and with the exception of Thomas Tuchel and at a Stretch, Aidan Terzic, none of the managerial appointments have really been successful. And so a lot of the issues on and off the park can probably be attributed to poor decisions taken at board level. That said, Dortmund is a club with huge potential and if we look, purely at the league table, they're not a million miles away from competing with Bayern Munich. Maybe I'm looking at it through rose-tinted glasses there, but regardless, they're not a million miles away in terms of the league table from Bayern Munich. I think Dortmunds would be well-advised to conduct a root and branch review and really look to establish a clear direction of travel. That's obviously a lot easier said and done, but that's why we're the ones talking on the podcast and not the ones acting as Sporting Director at Borussia Dortmund or sitting on the Borussia Dortmund board. I do wonder, Barlow, if the decision-makers at Dortmund are considering whether or not to part ways with Marco Rosa, while they, of course, spent a fairly significant amount of money to bring him in from Borussia Mönchengladbach his first season in charge has been really disappointing. And so, if I'm honest, I wouldn't be too surprised if the club decided to relieve Rosa of his duties. In terms of a replacement, perhaps the most sensible option or the most obvious option would be Bo Svensson, who has, of course, done such a miraculous job at Mainz. Svensson is, of course, following in the footsteps of Jürgen Klopp and Thomas Tuchel. Jürgen Klopp spent seven and a half years or so at Mines, while Tuchel was in charge there for almost five years. By contrast, however, Svensson has only been at the club for just over a year, and there is a suggestion that, like Klopp and Tuchel before him, he would perhaps be well advised to remain at Mainz for a few more years in order to really hone his managerial ability. That said, there is also a feeling that he has taken this Minds team as far as he can take them. If Dortmund were to offer him the job and outline to him a clear direction of travel, you do wonder if Svensson might be tempted to take on the role. What's clear, Barlow, is that something needs to change at Borussia Dortmund. Okay, we are going to take another. quick break we're going to focus in our next session on a team which is yeah enjoying themselves a lot more than Dortmund currently are and that team is Nantes in northwest France we'll be right back.
1: In France Nantes are enjoying a fruitful campaign under Antoine Comboire in the league the Canaries top the form table picking up 13 points from their last six games In the Coupe de France, they secured their place in May's final with a thrilling victory over Monaco in front of almost 34,000 fans at the Stade de la Bourgeois. So what factors have enabled the eight-times champions of France to flourish this season, Alec?
0: To put it simply, Michael, and this is putting it very simply, they have a solid defence and in the final third, they boast some of the most exciting players in the league those attacking players can be inconsistent, they can be frustrating, but when they click, they can be really quite spectacular. So I'll spotlight their attack shortly, but I do just want to focus briefly on the defence, and in particular, in goals, it feels like Albin Lafont has been around forever, but he's still quite remarkably only 23 years of age, he's obviously been at Toulouse before and Fiorentina and it feels like he's been around for just about forever but he is as I'm saying quite remarkably still only 23 years of age His superb performance between the sticks and the recent 3-1 win over PSG saw him become only the third goalkeeper ever to receive a 10 out of 10 rating from Le Cape and quite helpfully the Get French football news website notes the other two goalkeepers to obtain top marks, and that was firstly uh, Bruno Martini in 1988 playing for France under 21s against Greece under 21s, and then after that, we had Lars Wienfeld in 1997 for our house, the Danish side against Nantes. Uh, so he's joined a very, very exclusive club there, Albin Lafont, and he thoroughly deserved the 10 out of 10 rating. He was brilliant in that win over PSG. Now, Lafont, as well as performing admirably in that win over PSG, Lafont is also the captain of this non team. And over and above that responsibility, we've also seen calls for Didier Deschamps to include Lafont in the French national team squad. Lafont has made... 14 appearances for the under 21s and when we consider his form this season we look at his numbers and his numbers are really impressive he's sixth in league on for post-shot expected goals minus goals allowed and he's in the 82nd percentile for save percentage across the top five leagues in Europe so his underlying numbers are really good as well they're sort of backing up those ostensibly impressive Performances. So when we consider that form, then perhaps we will see Lafont called up to play for the national team. If he can keep that form up, it would seem like, for me anyway, and for a lot of other people, the next natural step in Lafont's career. He's still very young, as I'm saying, he's still only 23, but we're starting to see signs, really positive signs that he could be ready to make the step up again to play or well, maybe not to play for the national team as their starting goalkeeper, but certainly to form part of the senior squad and perhaps also in terms of club football to make a move to a club uh, even bigger than Nantes. In front of Lafont, Nantes tend to alternate between a back three and a back four. One of the standouts defensively anyway has been the 29-year-old Brazilian Andre Giroto. He has been deployed in the back line and as a defensive midfielder and he really has been excellent michael and arguably he's been one of the best defensive midfielders in the league one of the best defensive players rather in the league just looking at his underlying numbers 99th percentile for pressure applied, 99th percentile for tackles and 93rd percentile for blocks across the top five leagues in europe so those numbers really do reflect, again, the performances that we're seeing from Andres Girotto. He's also shipped in with four or five goals going forward as well. So not just valuable to his team defensively, also valuable in the final third for Antoine, Combuari and Nantes. Looking now at Nantes players in the final third, I think, Michael, I think there is an argument to be made that Nantes boasts one of the most potentially exciting front lines in the division at least when they line up with a front three with Moses Simon on the left, Rondal Colomouane through the middle and Ludovic Blas on the right. That front line, when it clicks, is really quite electric and capable of producing some of the more mesmerising sights in French football these days. You've got Moses Simon cutting in from the left and curling an effort towards goal with his right foot, as he did, in the breathtaking win against Lons. If you've not Watch the highlights back from nonce 3-2 and against Rons. Watch it back. Watch those highlights back. A, to see Moses Simon's late late winner and B, to see the scenes in the stand. Absolutely brilliant football and an absolutely sensational atmosphere. So we've got Moses Simon cutting in from the left. We've got Rondal Kolumouane striding forward at pace with the ball at his feet, committing defenders. And then on the right, we've got Ludovic Blaz dribbling deftly through a pack of defenders, twisting and turning his way out of trouble. Simon, Columwani and Blas can be inconsistent and their decision-making is often questionable. You could probably also describe all three players as quite raw. Several aspects of their respective games do need to be refined, do need to be fine-tuned. But yeah, some of Nantes' best performances, however, this season have come when Antoine Comboari has deployed the trio across the front line. So for all their inconsistencies, for all their occasionally questionable decision-making, I think when those three play up front for Nantes, when Antoine Comboari goes with that really dynamic style, Nantes are, yeah, they're a great team to watch. They are a really exciting team to watch, as they showed in that 3-1 win over PSG. Just looking again at the end product of the three players looking at their ultimate output between the three of them they've managed 26 goals and 14 assists across all competitions so those numbers are yeah they're really quite commendable when we think about the shambolic Raymond Dominic experiment last season when we take into account the fact that prior to his appointment at Nantes Antoine Combuari was largely perceived as an over-the-hill coach following poor spells in charge of Gangomp, Dijon, and Toulouse. When we consider that Nantes only preserved their League and status via a tight playoff win against Ligue 2 Toulouse at the end of last season, when we consider all of that, I think we start to fully appreciate just how remarkable Nantes' success in the league and in the cup has been this season. It's perhaps a cliched observation to raise, but in my opinion, Ligan needs a strong nunt. A strong non, obviously, non-geographically, they're from northwest France, and historically they've had such a rich history. Yeah, Ligan does need a strong nunt with their fabled youth academy, with that rich history, which I've just mentioned, with their passionate fan base, and with their really quite iconic stadium, which hosted games at Euro 84, which hosted games at for me anyway, more memorably, the 98 World Cup. I was too young to watch that World Cup unfold, but I remember watching the DVD of the 1998 World Cup in France and seeing the games at Nantes and thinking, oh, that stadium's quite cool. So that stadium, the Stade de la Beaujoire, for me anyway, I find it very iconic. So yeah, taking into account all that, I have a lot of time for a club which has been crowned champions of France on eight occasions. And departing from our usual principle of impartiality on the podcast, Michael. I think I'll most likely be rooting for Nantes when they take on Nice in the Coupe de France final in May. We're going to conclude our look at French football there. We're going to turn our attention now to Spanish football. Rudy Barlow is going to talk about all the latest developments from La Liga. We'll be right back. This season in Spain has been more than anything defined by the absolute chaos unfolding in the top half of the table. Crises, vast overperformance and philosophical debates on the future of clubs would all be mentioned if we were doing a Premier League years style recap of the year. And yet, after another fantastic fortnight of brilliant matches, we are left kind of where we were last year and what has been a tremendous European race.
2: Yeah, and on one level, that has to be a little bit sad. Alvaro Romeo tweeted out the stats that uh, the top seven in La Liga are the exact same as they were last year in different orders, should be said. But even so, I, I certainly find a little bit melancholy about that, especially when you consider sort of the degree to which um, some of the larger sides are, have Uh, searching for a word that doesn't get us the explicit rating um, on Indian iTunes. But yes, when two of the bigger sides have really had seasons that aren't very good. But in the last couple of months, they have kind of put their form together. Atleti and Barca are the best teams in the league since the turn of the year in 2022. And now we see them in third and fourth place, respectively. Sevilla are stuttering as well. It has to be said, Real Madrid look like they're going to run away with the title once more. And and Betis, I still hold out hope for them that they can challenge for a Champions League. And I don't think it's a done deal by any means. But certainly with Atleti and Barca in control of their own fate, you'd have to kind of back them because Atleti, I think they've regained their composure. There was a spell under, sort of before Christmas and, and certainly during January as well even, where they were so erratic and so unpredictable and there was so little certainty in their matches about how they were going to defend or how they were going to attack that it almost looked as if there was no way out for them, but they seem to have regained that sort of composure. And even if they aren't defending as well as they once were, even if they aren't the sort of bem-off that the defensive off that we've seen in past years, they are starting to put together a system that works and they're starting to put together a run of form where you can confidently say that Letty will, will beat teams that are lower than them in the table. And I think that's partly due to, due to sort of Simeone probably doubling down and finding again sort of his... I think you go through periods, obviously, where you're not quite as effective and, and that asks you to sort of look at yourself in the mirror and look at how you're managing people. I think they seem to have found a bit more symphony with Felix, I Felix, he looks a lot more engaged than he has in, in recent months. And that's playing out on the pitch. Marcos Llorente, we've seen some of his best form of the season. And let's not forget that he was one of their best players last season. He was a driving force behind their title win. So I think you saw that against Betis at the weekend. Marcos Llorente really sort of almost created one of, created an entire goal with his run, essentially. It was so good. It was it absolutely burned down the right-hand side. But the fact that they are now defending again, and not quite as I say to the degree or, or quality that they were, but the fact that when you get past an Atleti defender deep in the Atleti third, you can't take a big touch because there will be a second Atleti defender there to to intercept, to tackle, to clear the ball. You're not likely to get sort of five, six yards of of untamed sort of running at one defender or or running into space. That isn't happening anymore, and that's for me, the key to, to where Atleti have been able to stem the tide a little bit. And I think part of that is the form of Reynaldo Mandava, who's come, come in from Leo. He's been absolutely excellent. And he has made a couple big mistakes, but the, the sort of ability he has to cover ground, and so he's taken in sort of the left, left-hand side centre-back role of the three at the back. And the ability that he has to cover ground on that left-hand side, it frees up the players in front of him. The solidity with which he defends has really, it's it's really helped out that Letty back back four back five four games in a row now, and they've not had sort of not necessarily just to rely on the fight and the quality that they have, but they have had a bit of faith in what they're doing. It's two goals conceded in those four matches, and I think you can see that they are on a on a trajectory towards improvement and towards something that that looks sort of like what Simeone has had in the past. Barcelona, on the other hand, similarly, they seem to be displaying a proper belief in what they're doing again. And it's against Elche most recently, they won 2-1, they were go down behind, but there was never a sense of panic. And there was never a sense that the individuals were gonna to have to be the ones to, to sort of break the out of this. We didn't need a moment of brilliance. They could rely on the mechanisms and the way that they were playing, the space that they were creating based on their plan. And that really is, it's been something that's been lacking a lot. The fact that they can produce that kind of performance, they can overcome adversity away from home is something massive. The tie against Napoli, especially, when they went to Napoli and they absolutely blitzed them. I know the score was 4-2 and Napoli maybe could have scored an extra goal, but Barcelona could have had six goals quite easily. They They were fantastic against Napoli. I think that was big mentally. Javi not only has so many sort of, or he's he's instilled kind of his style of play, I think a lot more now, we're seeing a lot more of what he wants, but I think we're really seeing his man management work very well because Memphis Depay is coming back into the side. He looks confident, he looks committed and he looks very engaged with this. We've seen that. I think that was probably one of the doubts as to how Depay would react to Shabby because I mean, of course, Depay was Coomans' man, as was Frankie Dion. Frankie we was starting to see a lot more of what he's good at again. And in, in the Napoli tie, he was arguably Barcelona's best player in that leg. And the fact that they, they are both engaged, they're both starting to produce their best form alongside Ferran Torres, who keeps missing chances, but still is scoring, still assisting, still creating chances. The fact that that has not sort of sunk him is something that we've seen on numerous occasions, players be, be sort of destroyed by the pressure at Barcelona or, or sunk by the by the sort of media narrative around them. Ousmane Dembélé, there is no better example of somebody who was a pariah for Barcelona. And Xavi has completely ignored what the club wanted him to do. He's completely ignored the narrative. He's completely ignored the entire sort of image of Dembélé. He's taken him under his arm. And giving him the confidence to say, yeah, OK, you can be one of the best players in the world if you do things right. If you work hard, work under, hard under me, you'll get minutes. I will give you playing time and I will do what I can to make you a better player. And yeah, one thing I've really noticed that um, in some of the sort of uh, social videos that Barcelona do is that every match, Xavi is there to greet the players as they come into the change room. He's very good at giving hugs. He's, he, he's very good. Uh, a good sort of strong, hearty embrace. Maybe some slapping on the cheeks. It's very pep-like. And I mean, that's that's only to be expected. But you are starting to see that the players there are happy to be doing what they're doing. They believe in what they're doing. They feel comfortable in what's being asked of them. And uh, yeah, I think the fact that those, uh, Aleti are sort of on a on a path towards that kind of thing. The fact that Barcelona found it again has made those two sides so much more dangerous than what we've seen throughout the rest of the season. And frankly, sets them up to go into the summer and really make a push to, to become sort of closer to what they were in Atleti, Atleti's case last season and in Barcelona's case now two or three seasons ago.
1: The big news outside of that has been Granada's sacking of former Spain and Monaco boss Robert Moreno. After a 3-1 defeat to Valencia, their sixth in the last seven matches, Moreno was dismissed in the early hours of the Mediterranean morning. This is his third job, which has ended after a matter of months. It never felt like a marriage of love. And beyond that, what's next for Moreno after such a harrowing career run?
2: Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Heath Chesters, who who used to work for Granada, used to work for the club for La Liga Lowdown. And uh, some of the information, some of the stuff that he was telling me was pretty uh, eye-watering, so to speak. It's the sort of stuff that you you hear about uh, and you you don't quite believe that professional football club, especially of that size, is being run that way. Uh, I'll try and cut a long story short but because uh, c- he, he did give me a hell of a lot of detail. And it was more than intriguing to listen to, but they... Diego Martinez obviously was the manager before this season and arguably the greatest manager in Granada's history, took them to a European quarter final in his third season after getting them promoted and then finishing in European places in his second season in and first in La Liga. So he walks into the building on the last day, well, not last day of the season, but after the season is finished last year, expecting to be renewed. He said that, Diego Martinez had actually organized a dinner that evening to celebrate his new contract. And he he walks in all chipper and yeah, word has it that he was in there for two hours, walks in looking decidedly less happy about the situation and says, I'm leaving, which is, um, it's, yeah, quite, quite a turn from, from what was expected. And, Rumor has it, I guess, we're now sort of getting into speculation, but they broke quite a few promises that they'd made to him, hence the separation. So there's clearly some, there's a lack of planning behind the scenes, which has led to this, or there's a lack of uh, harmony in the the boardroom. That sort of takes place as well between a rift between the president um, and the former, well, the former president and the CEO, the owners, president was eventually removed and uh, and dismissed without good cause which again messes up sort of the internal workings of the club and and Robert Moreno comes in in the summer he's brought in before the director of football so Pep Boada um, has been appointed he's very experienced he's been around the game in Spain for a long time he was a scout at Barcelona for I think over a decade and he's brought in as director of football but Moreno is appointed before him and and all of Boada's suggestions are ignored, which obviously, again, creates this sort of uh, dysfunction in the club. And and when you have sort of three, four different sort of power holders within the club operating in in their own kind of sphere, it's going to lead to a disjointed club. And disjointed is what we've seen on the field as well. The, The way that Heath was talking to me about Robert Moreno was that he was saying he's prepotente, he was saying he's very full of himself and never really won the fans round, And you could kind of see it, to be honest. R- Robert Moreno is a character which uh, he confuses me. And I'll come on to sort of his future going forwards. I'll just say that they've um, appointed Ruben Torresia, who was part of the backroom staff as their interim manager, potentially to the end of the season. We don't know quite yet what will happen there but Robert Moreno has left Granada just a point above Cadiz in 17th place and, and very much in a relegation battle, which for their squad, to be honest, they should be comfortably above Cadiz. So, so yeah, we come on to Robert Moreno, and he's a strange character, to be honest. He, there was an incident earlier in the season where he was very curt with a journalist in a press conference, and it's very. it was a pre-match presser, and, and he... Wasn't particularly nice to this journalist, let's just put it that way. And the next day he comes in, and to be fair to him, he apologizes and said it was unprofessional of him. Uh, And all through his sort of career, we've seen sort of two or three different sides to Robert Moreno, which is quite hard to sort of assimilate, and it's hard to put your finger on what kind of character he is. Obviously, he had the Spain job for a while, and Luis Enrique came back and expected to have his job back from from sort of a sabbatical that he took for personal reasons. Robert Moreno wanted to keep the job and we saw Enrique was livid with him and really called him out in a a way that we've not seen sort of very often in sort of the public domain for football. Robert Moreno comes out the day after in tears in a press conference apologising and yeah, it just leads to this sort of overall picture of a manager that we're not quite sure what he's like as a character and more than anything tactical that he's doing, more than anything in terms of his coaching, because let's not forget that this was a guy who was part of Luis Enrique's team for a good decade as well. It's someone who won the treble with Barcelona. He he clearly knows what he's doing in a football sense, at least. But it's this, uh, yeah, this sort of side tune and what we've seen where he seems to... I, I don't know, have a very different image of himself to the rest of rest of the country and the rest of the players has ultimately been his downfall again. And it's hard to know exactly where he'll land. But to be honest, I can't see it being in La Liga. And I reckon he'll probably have to drop down either a division or, or move to sort of a, a lower standard of league, to be perfectly
1: honest. And finally, we touched on Betis last time and they were hitting the headlines again as they made the Copa del Rey final. The semi-finals as a whole, though, were a spectacle of the highest order. The best Copa del Rey in memory for your money? Absolutely. It was fantastic. And obviously,
2: I have sympathies with Barcelona, but part of the reason it was fantastic was because there was no big clubs in it. There four historic, iconic clubs in, in terms of Rayo, Athletic and Valencia, three of the largest clubs in Spain. Rayo, they are obviously smaller, but they, they have quite an iconography um associated with them and without that kind of shadow of massive resources there was a belief that kind of anything was possible and i think because of that the fans really bought into this and they, it, there was a special feeling around these ties all of the all of the four ties sort of the two legs across them each of them had like a really big atmosphere around them you could feel sort of the big match occasion and it it was really something impressive Valencia got through with an absolute stunner from Gonzalo Gedge. He, he was the sort of decisive factor against the Athletic Club, whose who's Copa del Rey curse continues. And Betis managed to get past Rayo in the dying minutes with a, a goal from uh, Borja Iglesias. But <laughs> the way the stands were, like, you could see the cameras moving on the television because it looked as if the stands were going to come down. It was absolute mayhem in the Benito Villamarin. And similarly, outside Mestalla afterwards, there's a balcony at Mestalla that kind of looks back onto the street outside the ground. It's in really quite in the city, Mestalla, and it looms up out of nowhere. And the street was full of thousands of Valencia fans. Valencia players were on the balcony, sort of leading the choruses, leading the chants. And it was real goosebump stuff. I, I, I have to say, I don't have any ties to Valencia And I didn't have like a a special preference that they won that tie, that they won the semi-final, but I was absolutely buzzing off it. I had goosebumps. It was real, sort of exactly what you picture football to be like if you're to dream of being a footballer, if you're to dream of being a manager. That was sort of one of those moments that you're like, I've made it. This is this is everything that you could possibly want. And uh, yeah. have to say just it was it was incredible it it was something special to see those four teams go at it hell for nothing in reserve and the reaction of the fans the electricity that came off them was was just absolutely magic and to be honest i can't wait for the final betty's valencia i think it's the 23rd of april and uh yeah can't come quick enough
0: absolutely barrel certainly one to look forward to perhaps before then though we could arrange a dinner with Diego Martinez and that dinner would be decidedly happier than the one which took place on the day on which he <laughs> found out that he would be leaving Granada Diego if you are listening to get in touch with us and we'll arrange a nice dinner for you and, and the three of us will yeah we'll wax we'll lyrical and we'll, we'll give you all the praise that you would need um on that note whether or not Diego is listening and whether or not he'll take us up on that offer on that note I would just say thank you to Michael Jones and Rudy Barlow some excellent insights there as always thank you also to you the listener hopefully you're staying safe hopefully you're staying well and I would just reiterate that message at the top of the episode when we said if you are affected by what's going on in Ukraine or anything that's going on in terms of conflict across the globe then our thoughts are with you we'll see you again in two weeks time, until then please do stay safe please do stay well thanks for listening, goodbye